0: Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have turned our existence into a numbers game have we not? Looking at the front pages this morning, you can see that we have 13 days until the schools and colleges are reopened, 34 days until you can have a picnic with six friends, if you've got any left, 48 days until you can have a drink outside or go to the gym or get a haircut or possibly do all three in the same day, Uh, 83 days until you can actually get inside a pub or a restaurant and 118 days until everything disappears. Possibly including the economy. We'll be talking to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, with his take on Boris Johnson's plan for recovery. I I actually think it's a massive step in the right direction. I know Julia uh, is concerned that we're not getting this done quickly enough, and I share uh, her uh, disenthusiasm, shall we say, for the the speed of what, what we're doing. However, I believe very firmly. As I said, then I will be standing in the middle of March, maybe before the middle of March, March the 10th, I'm going to say, uh, in Borough Market with a pint of beer in my hand uh, watching the world go by. Because I think things are going to move much faster than they expect. Even Neil Ferguson, Professor Pantsdown, has said that they could be going a bit quicker. 0344 is the number. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. Are you feeling good this morning or do you think your hopes of freedom have been dashed yet again? What are you hearing? What are you doing? And what are your plans i'm very firmly of the belief as i said yesterday that an awful lot of people have eased their own lockdown over the course of the last few weeks anyway 03444991000 coming up later on we'll check in with schools boss roger layton i'll be asking him what he makes of the rule that our children will be forced to wear masks inside the classroom as well as in communal areas all bleeding day i know an awful lot of parents who are not very happy about that we didn't sign up to it and i think a lot of parents are going to say do you know what We're not going to bother sending our kids back to school until after Easter when they don't have to do that. Because, quite frankly, it's inhumane. Plus, we'll hear from Saturday Kitchen Chef Cyrus Tony Waller on what the roadmap means for the restaurant business. And we'll take a little trip to Mars to check in with the Rover Project as well. 0344 499 1000. If you're like me, you'll have a spring in your step this morning. The weather's great. The end of the lockdown is in clear sight. And we will soon get our lives back. What's not to like, people? Sky's blue as well. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with
2: Mike Graham. Talk
1: Radio. Now, I can understand why some people are sitting around going, for God's sake, why can't we go and have a picnic with six people today? Why do we have to wait 34 days until we do that? Well, you know what? Yesterday we didn't have any of this. Last week, we didn't have any of this. The week before that, we were hearing that we might have to be uh, socially distancing from each other for the rest of the year. We were hearing that there might be another lockdown coming in the summer. I'm saying that this at least is a step in the right direction. We've now got some plans. We've now got some dates by which we can actually start thinking about doing things. Some people will be happy that they can at least and at last now go and book some kind of summer holiday. And so what? If things are not going as quickly as we would like them to, at least they're going somewhere. Let's talk to William Plouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, a man uh, who's always been a bit sceptical of the lockdown measures uh, and has always been very sensibly questioning them. William, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. I don't know whether you share my view or Julia's view that, uh, you know, things are at least looking up uh, or things should be a lot better.
2: Well, last time I was on, uh, just over a week ago, I said that obviously fatigue was setting in and uh, people needed hope uh, and that Boris should back the vaccine. And I, I think I urged him to take a win from where we are. Yes. With nearly 18 million people vaccinated and, all, and the key groups vaccinated. Mm. Um, I think he's taken a score draw here. Uh, like you, I agree that the sequence it would have always been a sequence. That's very sensible. Uh, but I think he's been a little bit overcautious. I still think some of the rules that we have now uh, just today still don't make very much sense and if you had a a more nuanced uh, approach to this you'd you'd certainly be allowing people to play tennis or uh, play golf outside yeah yeah, it makes no sense at all that is just uh, irrational not to let people do that Mm. i think the 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 hardest thing about the uh the, the the sequence um is the hospitality industry um, what he said is that yeah okay some pubs have beer gardens fair enough and that's seven weeks from now, but basically he said to pubs up and down the country and most restaurants, it's a full quarter. I mean you've got to wait wait a full financial quarter basically twelve weeks best part of twelve weeks before you can open. And I've reminded people before, but when uh, pubs were opened uh, on the on American Independence Day last mm. year, they traded with. Uh, appropriate measures taken inside the pubs for 14 weeks before the death rate uh, went up, mm-hmm. which involved, you know, uh, over a billion visits. Now, people in that industry are saying, well, we've done what the what the government asked us. We proved the point that we could trade, uh, um, you know, safely. Uh, and yet they've got to wait, um, you know, full financial quarter before they're open. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 but in, in general, Mike, I and mean, I think people should be happy that we've got um, a sequence now and a, and a, and a road map out of it and spring is um, coming and the government can't stop the spring. No.
1: And I think the government also can't stop the kind of the momentum that will be built up by the people because I think in <laughs> the end They keep saying it, even though it doesn't appear to be the case, that they do kind of govern by consent and they do govern by public opinion and they do try to represent uh, what people want and do what people want. And I think Mm -hmm. as we go closer towards, you know, the end of this month, which is only next week after all, as we go through the middle of March... And the numbers that we see keep falling, you know, tumbling like crazy in terms of mm. the, uh, you know, the numbers of people being admitted to hospital, the numbers of people dying, all of that, you know, and the numbers of people getting vaccinated. There will be a sort of inexorable, I think, root move towards speeding things up.
2: Well, you'd like to think so, Mike, but actually uh, on the government's language, uh, that can't happen, actually, because the language is no earlier than so the, the key dates they've put... Yeah, but I, ha- I had this conversation with somebody yesterday afternoon, William, after
1: Boris got his, uh, got his uh, speech in uh, the House of Commons. Yeah, but, you know, why would you believe everything or anything that they say? Because almost everything that they have said has turned out yeah. not to be the case, you know? So, I mean, I yeah. th- the fact that they've used those words, fine, but they can yeah. change them.
2: They can, but I think, in re- I think that's quite unlikely to happen. I mean, the, I, think, I, I think if we put it this way, I, from what's been published now, I'd sort of take what they've got, and I just don't want it to get worse. So, I mean, but I, I believe in the vaccine. I mean, largely the data that's coming out, the, the the study that came, the data that came out of Scotland a few days ago about the uh, efficacy of the Astra vaccine in particular, mm. was incredibly encouraging. I mean, this is a this is a great job. Yeah, uh, you know, the rollout uh, is working. I just, I, I, as I say, I think they're just being a, a little bit harsh. Um, and, and as I say, unnuanced and irrational in certain areas, mm. and certainly just just the it's brutal. I mean, what they're doing to the hospitality industry is brutal. And remember, uh, it will mean that the Chancellor next uh, week will inevitably have to extend furlough. So the the drag anchor effect of the debt we're building up, you know, is going to be very very significant. Mm. I mean, it's effectively going to be a quarter yeah. more of these measures. So it's these things these. Things do have effects, and as I say, I think um, he's been—he's taken a score draw rather than taken the win.
1: Yes, and I mean, interestingly, I've got quite a few tweets coming in already today. Dean um, has texted in today. He says, I'm a cabbie in Abingdon, Oxfordshire, uh, has got eight pubs, five haven't got a beer garden, probably 10 restaurants, but only one has facilities to serve outside. These draconian measures are utterly ludicrous uh, from a ludicrous uh, government. And I think a lot of people will see that that is a problem for many of the hospitality businesses that can't basically sell stuff outside. I mean, you know, we've had for a long time, I think even just le- leading up to Christmas, an awful lot of pubs Pubs and restaurants in uh, in this area here in London were serving Mm. takeaway drinks so people could go and kind of, you know, get themselves a drink, hang about outside. You know, it was a relatively civilised thing to do. Uh, That Mm. all stopped um, just before Christmas. I think the weekend before Christmas. Um, Mm. But I suspect that that will begin to come back because if you're allowed to go for a picnic, for example, uh, according Mm. to this in 34 days, then what's Mm. to stop a bar from selling you a drink?
2: Well, a bar could sell you a drink, and the, and the ones that can probably will, will legally do that will. But as I say, people don't stop drinking. I mean, the, the, the effect of, of closing pubs has been that people have been drinking at home, and there is evidence that deaths due to excess drinking, uh, you know, uh, the evidence is that, that that's increasing. So, again, these things aren't uh, cost-free. I think a criticism from the start that you and many other people and ourselves in the Social Democratic Party have been urging the government to take a more... A broader view on all these things, uh, but they—I they, don't think they will do. I think we're we're set now with the roadmap, and I, I, as I say, I hope it just comes in. I mean, it's interesting. They have the government have there's some interesting things came out of yesterday's announcement. Certainly on on sort of COVID passports, uh, they're you know calling them something else on their COVID status veri- verification certificates or whatever, and that's a very very contentious issue. Uh, I, I can understand the government being cautious about this because. It, it puts a disparity, basically, it divides your population into two, those that are lucky enough to have the vaccine and are protected and have gone for it and get their passport. I mean, a point that was made to me by a, a friend, you know, who's who's had his vaccine. Well, I've had my vaccine. Why can't I get to the pub or the shop?
1: Yes, well, exactly right. And I think, um, you know, there is this inexorable move, as I keep saying, towards... You know, normality. And I think the fact that they've even said, because they didn't have to say uh, that by June, all of the measures that we have put into place will have disappeared. You know, because that is a pretty bold statement, really, as well, considering that only a couple of weeks ago they were talking about keeping social distancing and mask wearing all the way through, perhaps until the end of the year. I mean, I'm assuming a lot of people that I've I've spoken to since yesterday talked about booking holidays in July. Um, I presume by that that they won't be quarantining people anymore.
2: Um, well, I think if the wheel comes off um, something, it'll be holidays in July abroad. I mean, I, I think, I'm, I'm, you know, it, 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 the vaccine rollout uh, in the EU has is, is, uh, been a complete failure. And the um, scare stories that frankly have come from the uh, top politicians in Germany and France about the Astra vaccine have actually been uh, fatal to their own vaccine rollout. Now people are uh, refusing Uh, in quite high numbers to take the vaccine. So they've actually shot themselves. They've they've ruined their own programme, not Mm. only with the bungling of the ordering of that. So I I think if you think that uh, you could safely book um, an EasyJet or Jet2 flight to Spain or France or Italy uh, in July, go for it. But I think you're very likely to get your money back, I think. Yes, well, of course,
1: what we don't often
2: address is the fact that in other countries
1: of Europe, they're in a worse place than we are uh, in terms of some, some of the measures they've got into place. You know, I mean, you can apparently go and find a bar that's open in France or in Spain, um, but there's a curfew in place in most most parts of the country, um, and you can't go anywhere without having a piece of paper in your hand, and you can't enter any of those countries without a test.
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very worried about it. And I, 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 as I say, I'm, I'm worried about it for, for French and uh, Italian citizens. I think in particular in France, Uh, They haven't really had um, the the sort of second or third wave that we've had. Mm. But, you know, epidemiologists in France are are warning Macron that it's going to come. And because, as I say, they haven't got their their skates on uh, to vaccinate the population. Actually, resistance to vaccinations from the general population in France is very high. So frankly, I I think it looks a bit of a mess for continental holidays, um, i i've always thought that the government should it's very sensible for the government to try and prioritize the domestic economy uh, not argue for some sort of closed- down autarky uh, like new zealand who are in a different position to us anyway but i think it's it, certainly going forward um it, it i'd be cautious actually um, uh, if i were if i were in government of allowing too much international travel into zones in europe that were had un, uh, you know largely unvaccinated mm. And could be a reservoir for infection. Remember, one of the reasons we started quite badly in the UK is that we were seeded from at least three or four different places. We were seeded simultaneously from Spain and France and Italy. And, uh, you know, and, and we didn't know that until it became apparent. But I think they need to be very careful about that, Mike. Yes,
1: and I think that's true. I mean, the trouble with, I mean, if I lived in New Zealand, I wouldn't be too happy with their government either because they shut down Auckland the other week because they had yeah. three new cases. And then I found out that actually the number of deaths in New Zealand from COVID is five altogether. I mean, that's it. And you're thinking yeah. to yourself, if you were running a business in Auckland and they were telling you not to run it because of three new cases, you'd be pretty upset, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, the Australians and New Zealanders are in a slightly different situation to us, and there's certainly the threshold. Um, before the government takes uh, strict action is different there than it is here you mm. know if one person, uh, if they te- you know you have one case in melbourne then melbourne has a mini uh, lockdown as well yeah. they are in a slightly different position though mike they are geographically isolated you only have to look at the um flight radar map to see that yes they get plenty of flights but it's not like uh the situation we situation we're in in london i mean you you literally we're a, you know, highly connected society. We, we, we were seeded with coronavirus before they were. Yes. And, so, and you've got to remember also, from their point of view, they, uh, they can feed themselves. I mean, they, the Australian economy domestically is open. Mm. Uh, the bars are open and, and sporting events are happening. And, uh, you know, I suppose if I were in Australia, and many of my family are Australian, I, I, would, I would be quite happy to, to live on a, a sort of autarky, mm. closed borders. As I say, they can feed themselves. It's probably been the best place to be in the last 18 months. I suppose so. But, I mean, the problem I've got with Britain being described
1: as the sort of centre of the travel hub of the world in some way, shape or form, where are all these bloody people going? You know, what are they doing? Why are they travelling through London to go somewhere in the middle of a worldwide pandemic when nobody's supposed to be going anywhere?
2: Yeah, I mean, we were. were, I I think when the public inquiry happens and and the academic papers appear, there's no doubt that we were too open um, in in, uh, February and March. And as i say if there's a trade-off there are always trade-offs you know politicians are quite disinclined to admit the trade offs sometimes and we've tried to be honest about it from the mm. start if there's a trade-off you should prioritize the domestic economy keep that open and if necessary be a little bit cautious about who uh, who goes where and how um but you know I, I, let's be optimistic mike i think there's been a lot of gloom um you know we've got a roadmap. let's hope they stick to it as i say it can be criticized but Um, uh, you know, let's hope by the time we can go to the pub in in 12 weeks' time, There are still some pubs
1: out. (laughs) Very much so. Let's hope so. Let's you and I perhaps uh, manage to meet somewhere as well, even though you're a long way away at the moment. William Cluston, thank you very much indeed, leader of the Social Democratic Party, uh, talking there uh, about how he's slightly less enthusiastic than I am about what's happened, uh, but nevertheless understands and gets the fact that we are at least moving in the right direction. I know that some of you are going to be saying to me, well, that's all very well for you to say. However, there are plenty of businesses which won't last until May which can't keep closed until April, which have to be opened now. Well, I think we continue to use our uh, best endeavours to put pressure on the government to make things move a little bit quicker. I mean, even Neil Ferguson, uh, who's not exactly somebody uh, who is everybody's favourite cup of tea, has said that the government could move quicker. I think they will. I think they can. And I think they must. But nevertheless... I don't think what happened yesterday is a cause uh, to be concerned about. I think it's a cause for celebration,
0: isn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh,
1: right now, though, let's talk to Roger Layton, Chief Executive of Partnership Learning and Academy Trust overseeing 12 different schools in London. Roger, very good morning to you. Good morning. First question, I suppose, is um, how easy will it be for schools to become ready by March the 8th uh, to fully reopen?
3: I think it it will be relatively straightforward. We've, We've known that this date is coming for a long time and almost everything that's going to be going on are things that we've already had in place in previous lockdowns or previous releases of lockdowns. So we're well prepared.
1: Well, that's good news, and I know you'll probably tell me that a lot of your schools have already been opened throughout anyway, because they've been teaching a larger number of of, uh, of key workers' kids and, and a larger number of vulnerable kids anyway. Is there a problem with um, spacing? Is there a problem with 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 room uh, and the ability to get everybody back in? There
4: is a
3: problem if you were trying to stick to social distancing but um, we'd already adjusted for that in our risk assessments and come up with this concept of bubbles um in in previous iterations of this so it's not possible to socially distance with a class of 30 kids in a classroom right and um, so you have to accept the fact that that cannot be the case and the control mechanism is that if somebody is found to have tested positive then unfortunately the whole of that bubble has to go and isolate right okay
1: ones. and that's the only approach and what is the instruction from government? Because not everything is as, as easily sort of um, understandable for everyone. I mean, is there, is there going to be mandatory testing every couple of days, every day? How's that going to work?
3: OK, so testing for, for pupils, um, for secondary age pupils, is going to be done at home. Okay. So there will be an initial test in school when they come back. During that week of the 8th of March, but after that, kids will be given two tests a week to take home um, to carry out at home, hopefully under the supervision of their parents. And right. that's how that's
1: going to work. And you're you're getting those free of charge, presumably? We're getting those free of charge. Yes. Right. Okay. So, I mean, how do you know that the kids are, c- are taking the test, though?
3: Well, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's the first. That's the if first hurdle. We're we'll on with. parents. We're relying on parents here, aren't we, mm. um, to be responsible. Um, and we'd hope that parents, in any case, would want to know whether their children were positive or negative. I yeah. mean, you know, there is, there is is self-interest here as well, isn't there? Sure. You know, if you've got your kid coming back home, you yourself might still be vulnerable. You might have, you know, people around you who could be vulnerable. You, yeah. You surely would want to know. Yes. And we will rely upon that.
1: Yeah, certainly I've heard some parents saying to me, you know, well, one of the people in the house is a bit vulnerable. They haven't yet had the vaccine. It might not be that they get the vaccine before Easter. Um, So we might just keep the kids at home until the next term. What would be your reaction as a a school uh, boss to that?
3: Yeah, we we can't accept that. Um, From the 8th of March, all the
1: usual attendance rules come back into place.
3: What do you mean? So you
1: would find somebody who didn't send their kids to school?
3: In theory, um, that would be a possibility. That's a bit of a sticky wicket, isn't it, after the year we've just had? Um, I'm saying in theory, that would be the case. Um, But certainly, we would be putting all the usual checks and balances in place. So it would be phone calls home in the first instance, possibly a home visit, Mm. all the things we'd normally do if children are not attending.
1: And where has this mask idea come from? Because I don't know for sure, you may be able to tell me, On the government website uh, about the roadmap to recovery, it says that masks are only recommended for school children to wear in class. So where has it suddenly become mandatory?
3: Yeah, Um, it's the the ruling is saying that secondary age pupils should now wear masks in class where social distancing is not possible. Mm. Now, there will be some instances where it is possible, where class sizes are small enough for social distancing to be the case. Um, and I think certainly in cases where you can have plenty of ventilation as well, that should should mitigate against the need to wear masks. But other than that, um, and um, my understanding is this is for a period, of initial period of three or four weeks. Yes, I mean, um, my, yeah, Boris, Boris
1: Johnson last night at his briefing at seven o'clock Said that should only be till the end of this term, if you like. So, yes. presumably, up until yes. the Easter break. Um, but can, up, go on.
3: So, I can see the logic of, you know, it, it's an extra little um, protection in this early phase of everybody coming back mm. all together at the same time. And it will give us a chance just to review how things have gone, but with an extra level layer of
1: protection yeah but it's a big um step isn't it i mean for for my own son for example 14 years of age um doesn't have a great uh, deal of problems health wise but but you know has got a bit of asthma um i don't think he's going to be terribly happy about wearing a mask for eight hours a day
3: well, it's not eight. Hours, it's not eight hours hours a day. It's only going to be five hours maximum in most schools. Don't know what your school is doing. Your your son's school is doing eight hours. Well, he lessons. enters the school. <laughs> he
1: enters the school around about half past eight in the morning, right? And he's there until yeah. about half past three in the afternoon.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's about um, eight hours in my, yeah, my okay. in my All in right. my book. Right.
3: Okay. Um, look, you're right. It's not pleasant. None of us like it, do we? No, I hate it. it. I
1: absolutely hate it. I do it when I have to do it, but I don't do it uh, when I'm walking around in the street. I find it very claustrophobic. And I just think a lot of children, a lot of parents of children will not be happy. I mean, apart from anything else, wearing a mask for that length of time uh, is going to cause all sorts of skin problems, you know, rashes. It's really not ideal.
3: It's, it's not ideal. And look, I think we're going to have to play this by ear and be sensible and use common sense mm. in schools in certain situations, aren't we?
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure in his school, they've got um, Perspex screens between the desks. So presumably, if you've got those, maybe you don't need a mask. Look,
3: and I, I don't think there are going to be inspectors coming in Um, to check on the absolute 100% adherence to this. I think this is a sensible idea. It's sensible advice, and most schools will be attempting to implement it. But I think we should also use our common sense um, to make sure that it's not becoming too
1: onerous. Yes, exactly right. So would you say then that it's up to the individual schools or individual teachers, individual classrooms?
3: Um, I think that... It's in the main, it's going to be down to individual schools, Mm. but there is a guidance to be followed and we do have to stick to health and safety rules and regulations. Um, So we will be um, endeavouring to ensure that pupils wear masks at all times, but a bit of common sense can be allowed in this, I think.
1: I mean, because what they were doing before uh, was sort of whipping them on and off about seven times a day, you know, coming out of a classroom, walking into a corridor, putting it on, you know, going for lunch, taking it off, putting it back on again, going back to another classroom, taking it off. But, you know, there was a lot of touching of the hand to the face, which is partly what you're not supposed to do. Uh, And yet that was kind of being encouraged. And if it was safe enough before not to wear a mask in class, why is it different now?
3: Uh, Yeah, I I think there's a lot of logic in what you've just said. Um, So I think it's going to be down to schools to use their common sense Mm. in the way they implement this.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, can you foresee... People saying, Look, I really don't want my child to wear a mask. And if so, what do you say to the parent?
3: That would be very difficult. We would um, try to persuade the parent. We always try and talk things through and find a resolution um, that is in everyone's best interest for your child to wear a mask. In the nth degree, I think we would probably at the moment during this three or four week period would have to say that the child would have to remain at home.
1: Right. Because So you could order a child to stay that. home. But if the parent ordered the child to stay home, you would want to find them. Um, <laughs>
3: the world isn't perfect, Mike. I know. Um, <laughs> Listen, I'm not trying to catch you out, Roger. I'm, you know, I'm a parent, yeah. so
1: I want to know what the school situation is going to no. be like, you know?
3: We, yeah, but we're, we're trying to adhere to the best advice and the best guidance um, that's been given to us. But by But the, the
1: trouble is it keeps changing. It's not your fault, but the government's no, advice changes every, every bleeding week, isn't it? Yeah. And that's why,
3: again and again, I'll say we at school level, on the ground, will use our common sense. We will try and avoid um, conflict keep everyone on side and at least to get through to the Easter holiday and hopefully when we come out the other side we won't need to wear masks.
1: Yes now you I think the last time we spoke were saying that you are doing some testing at the moment in in your schools as far as uh, you can Um, what what sort of results are you seeing at the moment does it look as though your levels of of positive tests are going down is it possible to say?
3: Yeah, um, very, very tiny numbers of positive tests. Um, and they've been going down throughout mm. the period that we've... Um, been so that's a good thing, isn't it? The, yeah, good news.
1: Yeah, so that's um, sort of following the pattern, generally speaking, in the country then? Uh, absolutely. Right. And as
3: part of the testing regime moving forward... Um, staff in both primary and secondary schools will also have two lateral flow tests a week that they'll carry out at home right so that will be extremely helpful as well we get a very clear picture of any infections amongst the staff
1: right and as far as you're aware roger i mean has the teaching unions had much of a role in these um sort of decisions that have been made by boris
3: as far as i'm aware unfortunately not i'll say unfortunately because i know the unions are sometimes painted as enemies of school opening um that's only one that's
1: only one of them i think
3: well (laughs) in in my experience working with them you know on the ground they're they're not um they just do want to be involved in the discussions um and take part Mm. in decisions that are made Uh, unfortunately this government has tended not to involve the unions at an early stage and that's. Cause the tensions i think have emerged over the last few months
1: and when it all comes back on march the 8th will that be the first time that you've probably had a sort of full house as it were because i know some schools have had all the pupils back in but not all of them have
3: No, um, for many of our schools, it will be the first time we've had an absolute full house for many, many months. Mm. And we are genuinely looking forward to it. Um, You know, it's been incredibly difficult, incredibly challenging for everyone this past year. Oh, it has.
1: Um, I mean, there are certainly some people who have said to me, maybe we should just forget about this year academically and kind of kick it off again in September. Um, but I suppose if you can if you can move through the Easter holidays and start up a proper term uh, for the summer uh, after after the beginning of April, you'll be quite happy with that.
3: Oh, that that will be superb. And, and, you know, that's going to be a key term for large numbers of kids, isn't it? You know, obviously, if you're doing exams, I know exams are going to be very different this year. Um, but if you're doing exams and assessments, it's vital that, that you do as much as you can between now and the end of the year. Yeah. And look at those Year Sixes who'll be looking forward to transferring to, to secondary. That summer term is a great term for them. It's their last term in primary when they celebrate their time in their primary phase and look forward to secondary. So it's a really important term for lots and lots of kids.
1: Mm, absolutely right. And as far as um, the kind of uh, the, the the way that that their work has been handled. Um, Will you start kind of more or less on the 8th of March with a view to saying, right, we are now, this is us. We're now back forever. Uh, We're now going to catch up with loads and loads of stuff. I mean, are you going to extend the day that's been mentioned?
3: Um, We haven't got any clear plans to extend the day yet. I think the most important thing is going to be to get people back into their routines um, and give teachers a chance to really properly assess where kids are. Look, the truth is that the home learning in general has been incredibly effective, particularly in this last phase. Mm. So teachers do have a pretty clear picture of where um, their kids are. There will be gaps. There will be the need to catch up. But we're not going to knee-jerk into, let's add an extra hour on the end of the day. Um, for the moment, let's just get back into normalcy, yeah. and then
1: we'll see what we need to do. And what are you expecting from the kids themselves? Because for an awful lot of them, they'll be overexcited, they'll be you know, really pleased to see their friends that they maybe haven't seen for the best part of eight weeks or so. Um, will you try and be a bit sort of lenient with them, if you know what I mean? I'm not asking for... Uh, you know carte blanche for them to do whatever they like and jump up and down on the desks but you know will you have to tell your your staff to kind of give them a bit of a break if you like um,
3: I don't think we'll have to tell our staff to do that. Um, look, in our schools, we our, our approach to discipline is that we're in this together. It's a joint enterprise. Joint enterprise in the best sense of the word. Mm. We're all working to the same goal, which is maximum achievement. Yeah. We don't yeah. generally have to impose discipline in, a, in an iron rod sort of way. Yeah. So I'm expecting everyone to just be so happy to be back together and seeing each other again that it's going to be a very pleasant
1: atmosphere sure. well. and what about sports i mean will you be able to go back to doing sport in the normal way or will there be any restrictions on that
3: yeah we're waiting for further guidance on that um the general the general um uh, uh, direction of travel seems to be in society in general that outdoor um activities are going to come on stream quicker than others so we're hopeful that sports can yeah. get back to here pretty quickly
1: well as long as you don't do what the six nations do where they socially distance from each other while they're singing the national anthem and then immediately start rucking uh, and climbing all over each <laughs> other uh, when the game actually begins which doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> yeah. to me <laughs> so you know anomalies are everywhere roger listen appreciate your time thank you very much indeed roger layton there chief executive of partnership learning and academy trust uh, overseeing 12 different schools not gonna be easy for schools not gonna be easy for parents either and if you're a parent i'd love to know what you think of this compulsory mask wearing scenario because at the end of the day i mean do you really want your children forced to wear a mask for around eight hours. Now, you might say what the kid's doing in school for eight hours, but it's effectively how long they're there. Half past eight to about half past three is eight hours by anybody's reckoning, isn't it? Um, So I would suggest that basically, um, if you want to uh, kind of revolt against that, then it seems as though that might be a possibility
4: Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk
1: radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here, of course, on Talk Radio. Let's go to Cyrus Tony Weller now and find out precisely what he makes uh, of this uh, plan of Boris Johnson's, this roadmap that he unveiled yesterday in the House of Commons, elaborated on slightly last night uh, from the Downing Street media briefing room. Cyrus, a very good afternoon to you.
4: Good afternoon to you, Michael. How I are
1: mean, you? I'm good. I'm, I've been saying um, with sort of mixed response really from people that at least now we have a plan. It might not be to everybody's uh, taste. It might not be fast enough for everybody. But it seems to me that if you're running a restaurant or you're running a nightclub or you're running a bar, at least now you've got some kind of framework by which you can make a plan.
4: Well, it's a middle-of-the-road plan kind of a thing because yeah. it's a very cautious plan. Mm. So that... Uh, it's a thing of saving whether you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. So it's a, it's a plan that has been very cautiously put together. It doesn't make, give very good hope to lots of London restaurants in particular. Mm. Because uh, most of us do not have outdoor spaces to allow people in. Right, And then um, a lot many of them feel that you know, May is a bit too far away. But having said all of that, there is a plan. And everyone's looking forward to June maybe. Mm. I don't think... That many will want to open in between April and May, for fear that something could go wrong again, because the last lockdown has really been quite devastating, in 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 the true sense. Yes. So we have to wait and see what exactly unfolds. But the big question is, what will the chancellor give in his budget, and right. that is what everyone is waiting for, because. It's fair enough that you can open, but businesses need a little bit more support from the Chancellor, I suppose, because furlough is great for the employees, but smaller businesses are still paying, national insurance still paying, uh, pension funds still paying their rents and other things, and the other expenses that are put on hold are just piling up anyway. Yes, of course. That's what the Chancellor will, I think, when he decides what he delivers, is where the question of the survival of the industry will come, really.
1: Right. I mean, I've heard conversations about VAT um, possibly being either reduced or increased. I've heard possibilities of, 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 uh, of, you know, sort of business rates being frozen, that kind of thing. I mean, what is your best case scenario for Rishi Sunak and your worst case scenario?
4: Well, the best case scenario would be that Mr. Sunak listens and he does hold VAT back to 5% because that will give people an opportunity to claw back Yes, it's yes. If they remain frozen for a little bit of the foreseeable future, it'll help uh, businesses might need a little bit more help in terms of revamping the businesses mm. because everything's been shut down for most places. They will need a lot of money to be able to uh, redo their restaurants, spruce it up, get the equipments, everything up in running order to get ready for the summer season to come. So Let's wait and see. I mean, in the worst case scenario, the uh, government, we all know, has got no cash in the coffers. The coffers must have dried out by now. Right. To a degree. So I don't want to be in the shoes of the government right now making decisions. But hospitality is a very, very big part of Britain. I mean, uh, it's a 150 billion pound industry. So it's something that is very much vital to the economic growth of Britain. And if government understands that, wholeheartedly and unless like in the news before, it was said that five pubs a day were closing down. Yeah, That's devastation. And what will happen to those pubs? They may change their role. They may become something else. Restaurants haven't been announced yet, how many have closed and how many will close. Hmm. Furlough has kept people going. But in the moment the furlough stops, it may well be that all of a sudden, places might decide to close down. If the furlough is extended, yes, restaurants will have the courage to continue to look for trade again and see if they can claw back and grow in making this economy thrive. Right. And in in terms of London
1: itself, Cyrus,
4: I mean, how confident are you
1: that you will see the same level of kind of footfall that you saw, I guess, you know, a year ago?
4: Super question. I was hoping you'd ask me that question because London, we don't know whether all the offices will reopen fully. London is reliant heavily upon... The people coming in to work and to thrive and to succeed. So, if people are going to be working two days a week or three days a week, there is a say. There is a uh, mention in one of our hospitality media that Wednesday will become the new Friday now for some people yeah. because they don't work the weekends. They may work the first two or the next two days of the week. Yeah. So it's all up in the air at the moment. I mean, offices may shrink a little bit. And Londoners need the confidence to travel on the tubes, the trains, everything else. So I'm a little bit more spe- skeptical about London just come bouncing back straight away. People are desperate to get back to work. I think people have had enough of being in the homes and locked up all the time. For yeah. some, it means that there is no social interaction and we need that. So there's a mixed bit of uh, confidence in my mind. Though I'm a London restauranter I hope I am wrong and things come back. And we can all successfully reopen our businesses and, you know, start serving people again.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I know you're in the process of moving your particular restaurant. But, I mean, the worry I've got, Cyrus, about London is that when it does start to fill up again, um, Sadiq Khan has kind of cancelled the roads so much that people are just going to be stuck in traffic all day (laughs) and
4: all night trying to get anywhere. Well, if you are a driver like me in London, because I have to commute from one side to the other... Mm. 6.30 this morning, I left home at quarter past six today because we were having some movers coming to the restaurant. Right. And the traffic was jammed at 6.30 in
1: the morning.
4: Ridiculous, isn't it? At a parking spot. So London is perpetually gridlocked with all the roads being narrowed down. Right. The buses are having to stop in the middle of the road with this uh, new system that they've got in some parts where there's a cycle lane. And there's a platform Mm. for the bus to stop at, And the people are standing on the street on the other side. So I think uh, London as a city, I know the mayor's ultimate aim is to completely make London, maybe vehicle free, Mm. but it's very difficult when you have millions of businesses depending on transport to bring deliveries in, bring supplies in, to bring things in. And if you gridlock a city from six o'clock in the morning, and you have congestion charge till 10 o'clock in the night, mm. seven days a week, and the U.S. charges, I think London is being marginalised or victimised.
1: Yes, First, I agree. And I think Rishi Sunak should address that. And I know that there's people listening to this show outside of London saying, oh, all they care about is London. But I mean, it's the capital city and he's killing it.
4: Well, it's not just the capital city, my dear sir. It's supposed to be the financial hub of Europe, mm. for example, yes. Yeah. And, london is a major contributor to the gdp of our nation and if london is made to suffocate i think we are going to see a very slow progress coming in and frustration will set in very rapidly Mm. and i think that is one of our big fears that we may we may see a lot more struggle coming in
1: yes do you have any worries cyrus that this um sort of rollout, as it were uh, may not be uh, kept to, as it, as, as, if you like. You know, if they suddenly send all the kids back to school, infection rates go up, and then they suddenly go, oh, actually, you know, we said May the 17th, but actually now it's going to be June.
4: We have fears, which is why I think the PM has kept it in the very middle of the road thing, which had gradual re- exposure, gradual release. Yeah. One never knows, the last lockdown was all going very well. We thought December we were might see some trade popping in finally make a little bit of sale and then bang, instant shutdown. There wasn't even any time given to us. Mm. It was straight away, bang, it was locked down immediately. It could happen again. We just pray and hope it doesn't happen again. Otherwise, I think our nation will have a long, long time to catch up. Long time to catch up. Yeah,
1: I think that's absolutely right. I'm hoping for the reverse actually to be the case, that maybe because things improve so much, with the vaccination rollout, gets to 20 million be, be, between now and, say, the middle of March. The vaccinations then continue to rise. Then you get the falling of the, of the infection rates and the falling of the numbers of people going to hospital. And I think by mid-March, I'm hopeful anyway, um, that you might see them saying, all right, um, now we can maybe open some of the pubs up for takeaway and maybe they can move everything forward a couple
4: of weeks. I think many more uh, with you, with you on that, Mike. Many, many more. Because the one thing you do want is to start trading. I mean, things have happened. The takeaway business has blossomed so much for most people. Yeah. But that is that is not what people actually should get very used to. We do want people to come out. We need do want them to socialise. We mm. don't want to forget. I think I will. I will have a lot of struggling with names of our customers when they start coming back. <laughs> we haven't seen them for over a right. year now.
1: I know. But that's the other worry, isn't it? I mean, I've heard some um, people. Um, talking like from, the, say, the hairdressing salon business, where they had people working for them um, who have now uh, now are never going to come back because they don't think it's a reliable enough business. So they've left the business. And so when the hairdressing salons open up again, they're going to be short of staff. I don't know if you have the same problem uh, with, with waiting staff and that kind of well, thing what, and
4: cooks. What you, what you see here, Mike, is a self-cut haircut at the moment. Right. And-
1: well, it looks fine.
4: I haven't done a good job, no, but I do want the barber back because you have a nice conversation, you go there, and if the queues and queues are big, people will look at other means. Mm. But uh, the big thing in Britain was this huge blossoming of salons for a long, long time. I mean, all over the place, and I just hope the businesses come back. Yeah. I mean, it's not just one business. It's a whole plethora of businesses coming together that make the community. Right. And
1: as far as a lot of the restaurants and the people that you speak to um, in, in and around the country and even in other parts of the world, I mean, are a lot of them carrying massive debt now because of what's happened in the last year? And how will they deal with that?
4: Well, that is one big thing because, I mean, yes, the couple of deaths, but a lot of people are just hanging in there, Mike, just mm. to see if they can re recapture some of their business. And if it comes to the stage that uh, they feel threatened and they can't cope, people will lock up and they will close their shops down. It's a danger because we the unemployment rate is already rising. The hospitality industry employing nearly 5 million people. If your hospitality industry starts to get crippled, you may see a few more million people just suddenly without jobs. And that is a very, very big fear.
1: Mm, it really so is. Many- well, let's hope we get some good news sooner rather than later, Cyrus. I mean, I'll, I'll obviously be, as soon as you're open, I'll be there um when are you are you are you still opening in the old place or have you moved to the new one yet
4: no the, the old place we cannot open we're moving further up to commercial street okay and we're also setting up something where i'm sitting right now at the royal albert wharf in uh, in east london by city airport okay so nice. fingers crossed, everything goes well to plan. Excellent.
1: Well, I shall be uh, seeing you soon, hopefully, rather sooner rather than later. Hopefully, maybe in April rather than May. But uh, look after yourself. Thanks very much indeed. Cyrus Waller, uh, chef and owner of Cafe Spice. It's a real struggle for these guys, you know, and they have been valiantly uh, trying to keep it all together and hold it all together. And they employ a great number of people uh, in all sorts of different jobs. And I think the problem is, for many people uh, who have been through this now for the past year or so, They've left the business. They don't want to be in that business anymore because they don't know whether it's going to be good enough for them to pr- supply uh, money to look after their families. And if you're in the chef chefing business and you don't know whether you're going to be working from one week to the next, it's very, very difficult for you. It's already a, 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 a job which has quite a high burnout rate anyway because you work really hard, really long hours, on your feet most of the day. It's really tough. And I think the problem for this government is that they don't really understand... Those kinds of people and those kinds of working conditions and those kinds of businesses. Because it's all very well saying, oh, well, you know, Rishi Sunak understands business, he used to work for Goldman Sachs. Well, right. But all he thinks he knows about restaurants is going and eating in them. He's never actually worked in one, I shouldn't think. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Ian Collins will be here just before one to tell us what's coming up uh, on his show, of course. Right now, uh, we're going to talk about Mars because, of course, our favourite astronomer is here. Greg Smyre-Rumsby, space expert from AstronomyNow.com. Greg, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Yeah, good afternoon. Hi. Um, Hi, Mike. Uh, Yes, very exciting stuff, isn't it? Isn't it, Justin? I haven't haven't actually had an opportunity to talk about it yet. So for some reason, we didn't get it in towards the end of last week. So this is our first chance at at taking a bite out of Mars. So do tell us about what's been happening. I see that uh, from a piece of the Times today, the descent began at 12,100 miles per hour. Uh, back in uh, the back end of last week, it was Thursday, I think, when they landed. That was quite an exciting moment,
0: wasn't it? It was in, in, in modern parlance. That's twenty thousand kilometers per hour entering the upper atmosphere, and Mars's atmosphere is a hundred times thinner than the air that we're sitting in. So the idea that you can use uh, lose um, you know uh, energy uh, speed effectively by braking in some way, having a parachute, is almost a non-starter. Right. However. They did use a parachute. It was a supersonic parachute, as you can see here. Mm. And it's slowing the vehicle down and taking all the speed out of it. Uh, But it still isn't quite enough. Uh, So it would it would hit the ground hard if you didn't have these retro rockets.
1: Yes. So were you surprised at how kind of um, easily it appeared to land in terms of, you know,
0: I mean, I was expecting it to sort of land and just explode because it was going so quickly. (laughs) Well, they've done it before. They did do it, uh, you know, back in 2012 with Curiosity. But this is much more sophisticated. It has ways of understanding what's below it in the way of rocks and rubble. Mm. So we can avoid all of that, which is quite amazing. It's like a sort of an internal GPS system. And you can actually see in the shot there to the right, you can see the coastline uh, of that lovely delta and oh, yes. in that delta is all the uh, you know the the ingredients effectively for life that's that's why it's going there
1: mm. this is the place they think was where a river was right
0: Yeah, absolutely. A river flowed into the Jezero crater and then flew out, uh, you know, flowed out on the other side. But dragging with it all this sort of soil uh, granules and and some of the chemistry much needed for for possibly building life on Mars.
1: Yeah, right. So what happened to all that water then? Where did it go?
0: Well, Mars over the years has uh, lost its magnetic field. It it no longer has a magnetic field. So the upper atmosphere is is essentially scorched Mm. by... Uh, radiation from the sun and it it breaks the molecules apart and they boil off into space. So over billions of years, Mars has effectively lost its atmosphere. Mm. It was a lot thicker in the days and a lot wetter as well. So it's a bit like a desert now then? Oh, a a global desert is the best way to describe it, Mike. Absolutely.
1: Wow. And you know what I find fascinating is I've looked at some of the footage um, and you can hear noises, but you can't quite make out what they are but it looks exactly like the Mars that was depicted um, in that movie, The Martian. I mean, it's it yeah, uncanny. Very,
0: yeah, well, uncanny only because we have been on Mars with rovers and landers mm. for, for many, many years. The only problem with that film is I sat in the cinema and I watched old, <laughs> um, what's his, not Ben Affleck, the other one, I've forgotten his name for a minute, but he got yeah. blown over yes. by the wind. You could have a hurricane on Mars. You could easily drop a piece of paper and it would barely move left or right in really? the wind. Why? The air is so thin, it's ridiculous. Oh, because it's so thin. It was Matt Damon, wasn't it? Yeah, no energy in it at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's
1: incredible. So, so what, I mean, presumably those people in charge of this mission are pretty pleased with themselves at the moment.
0: Oh, chuffed to bits, I bet. And they've got this little helicopter they're looking forward to, which at the moment is strapped to the underbelly of the Perseverance rover. Right. But in about a month's time, they're going to drop it down onto the surface, check it out, make sure the systems are working. It's only 1.8 kilograms. It has, it's basically a battery mm. with a helicopter blade on it. Right. Uh, but it can recharge the batteries, and it'll fly to hopefully maybe 10 metres, maybe 30 metres above the surface. But the rotor blades have got to be going really fast.
1: Right. <laughs> so what happens to the rover in the end? And when?
0: how long does the mission take? Well, it's a nuclear powered rover. These are not solar powered rovers. Uh, they have had solar powered rovers before. So there is an inevitability about it literally running out of electrical juice. Mm. Uh, but that's a long way down the, the road. I mean, 2012, that, you know, Curiosity landed on Mars. That was uh, supposedly a mission to last two and a half to three years. Well, it's well over that by mm. now. And it's still working fine. Thank you.
1: Right. So so this is a sort of open ended uh, scenario then.
0: Yeah, really, it is. But once it gets up to that coastline, because there are several coastlines we can actually see from orbit, uh, we'll be able to have a look at where the water was, how it moved, how it flowed, and also study the ingredients, which it's going to encapsulate in little pencil-type Uh, cylinders and Mm. it's going to leave them on the surface for a later rover to retrieve much less complicated because the idea of it is to send a little rocket back to the earth with those very samples for us to study here Mm. in laboratories on the earth and that would be remarkable wouldn't it if they could actually make that happen oh mike honestly this is breathtaking stuff you Mm. know is there life on mars no could there have been life on mars yes yes Is there life on Mars today, but buried under the surface so we can't see it or Mm. detect it? Maybe.
1: Right. Wow. So, I mean, um, as far as that is concerned, how soon before we can see anything like that, do you think? Would it be, we're talking sort of end of the year? Well,
0: that no, the return mission is due to return. I think 2031. Oh, I God. think that's what it is. So it's about ten years away. Okay. But in that time, of course, we will have studied Mars with that rover and its battery of instruments. Got really sophisticated instruments, mm. way more so than its twin sister Curiosity, which isn't a twin but it looks like a twin. Mm. Uh, it's got loads of stuff and, and microphones. It has microphones. Yes. Yeah, so what have we heard so far? Well, you've heard a little bit of the wind, which isn't very strong because mm. of that very lightweight atmosphere. Um, the idea is that we can understand some of the machinery that's working on 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 um, perseverance as well with mm. the microphones, so they can detect lots of things. Uh, there's a dynamic there which we're we're not used to, and the scientists are going to use it wisely. Is there any danger that it could get overheated because it's pretty hot up there, isn't it? No, it's cold. Plus, it's cold. The hottest temperature at the equator in the middle of summer, in the middle of day, is about twenty degrees centigrade. Oh, grimy! So, um, so, yeah. so, so
1: it's frozen then.
0: Uh, yes more or less as it rotates on its axes which it takes about the same length of time day and night mm. to occur on Mars as it does on the earth but as it as it rotates into nighttime the temperatures plummet to about minus 120 God. in the winter well wouldn't freezing. that be dangerous as well then
1: could it freeze the thing yeah
0: yeah it can, it can actually you know damage a, a spacecraft if it doesn't have internal heating right. which of course they all do nowadays
1: yes. Well, it's a fantastic project, isn't it? And and I mean, we we will just continue to watch it with some awe, I suppose.
0: Oh, we will do. And anything that it finds will be different to what we've looked for so far, simply because of the sophistication of the instruments. And then a new whole gamut of understanding will come about. And then the questions, more questions about it. And it tells us about the Earth. It tells us about our planet Mm. and how we can either damage it further or maybe rescue it because Mars is, is an, an analog in a way of, of what can happen to a world. Right. And
1: I always ask you this question before I let you go, Greg, anything to watch out for in the skies uh, this week?
0: Uh, in the sky, look at the moon. you have got a fantastic moon at the moment, mm. which is a gibbous moon. So it's almost full. It's getting towards full. It's well worth just, just having a, the naked eye. Also, look out for parhelias. These are little sun dogs, little bright sparks of colourful light at 22 degrees either to the left or the right of the sun near sunset. Mm. Look for those. It's ideal conditions for parhelias or sun dogs, as they're sometimes sun known Sun dogs,
1: as. I've heard of. Yes, absolutely right. Beautiful brilliant thing. brilliant stuff. Greg Smyrumsby, rumsby as ever, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Astronomynow.com. Look out for the sun dogs, look out for the moon, uh, and keep your eyes on Mars while you're at it. This is Talk Radio.
0: Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.